Welcome to Shovel Lake Public Radio. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast. It's getting serious on this track, fail. We are here today broadcasting live. Thanksgiving break is upon us, and we don't have much snow here, which makes the skiologian pretty sad. More time for skiology, I guess. Here we go. Yep. Yep. Okay, turn that off. I was going to start freestyle rapping. Anyway, so basically, just give you a quick update. What's going on? It's November 21st today. And right now, looking out, broadcasting live from Leadville, Colorado. About 10,200 feet. I'm experiencing a little bit of lag right now in my headphones. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe we can fix that. Yeah, anyway, uh, just want to give you the update. We are heading into Thanksgiving break. I was really excited to try and uh, complete many things, take care of many things in my life right now. We are in the midst of a move again. I think this is the 12th move for my wife and I in our six years of marriage. So it'll be... I think it's the 12th house we've lived in. <clears throat> I could walk through them. We got the 12th move. We got to be out by December 6th. So theoretically, we got we to gotta move most of our stuff because we got some serious deadlines coming up too. Uh, I'll be submitting my final thesis draft, all 194 pages of it. Um, the lit review, chapters one and two, my methods, all that. It's going to be sent off. It's due November 30th. We'll have the proposal uh, sometime between December 9th and December 11th, we got to move out of the house December 6th. I am taking a praxis exam December 7th in Denver. Um, and of course, we'll be teaching full time during all of that uh, with my fifth graders remotely. Uh, it's been a wonderful experience, but that is what I've been caught up with. So not quite as much show material and show prep well, honestly, I've had a lot of show prep. I've been listening to tons of podcasts and still trying to read quite a bit. I feel like waking up in the morning, my routine has been getting up really, really early and sometimes spending a half an hour just reading a book um, to kind of wake up. Maybe five, Sometimes I've been getting up at 5.20, 5.30 and reading in the morning uh, to wake up. And that's been good. I've been reading through Understanding Genesis, How to Analyze, Interpret, and Defend Scripture by Dr. Jason Lyle. We brought that up on our last show a little bit. And it really, I mean, it, it, it has some some great things. I've learned a lot about the hermeneutical spiral and uh, the consistency of Scripture. Not, not just proving that, but just the logical framework of how that works and how hermeneutics operates. Um, so that's been really awesome. Kind of one of those, you know, you trust as a Christian, or you should trust that Scripture can interpret Scripture, and you uh, and, and how to interpret Scripture, and is there such a thing as as language that can be communicated effectively to God create that language? And, and this book explains all of that, and then also provides um, logical and reasonable refutations for um, even other Christians' arguments to the contrary, why that why the, their arguments don't make sense. 
biblically and are not consistent with the Bible. And, and, and really, again, ultimately it boils down to, are you, are you the, the, the regular kind of Christian, the kind that go to heaven when, when you die? And that, that being that you believe and submit yourself to the authority of the scripture as the word of God, and thereby the necessary precondition for all intelligibility. Are you that type of Christian or not? And um, if you're not, you can try and make all these fancy arguments and interpretations to um, fit in what you're really submitting yourself to, which is an alternative worldview. You can try and um, figure that out and finagle it, but it's going to be inconsistent not only with itself, but certainly with the Christian faith and with what the Bible actually says consistently with itself. And Lyle, over the course of 480 pages, uh, has been doing that. And he has conversations. He analyzes other um, uh, theologians, uh, other secular scientists. Uh, if you don't know Dr. Lyle, you missed our last show. He is based out of Colorado Springs. He's an astrophysicist and a theologian. So maybe the smartest guy in the world, right? <laughs> because he not only knows a lot about, uh, um, well, he, he he's well-versed in in science, but he's also well-versed in theology. I guess I'll say it that way. Anyway, I've been reading that. I've been listening to a lot of shows, as I always do. Been doing some bike rides. Training volumes have been a little bit lower than normal um, just because of my schedule, but it's still decent. Um, I told my wife yesterday I've been on the hamster wheel training plan because since we haven't had much snow uh, out here, it's been a little hit or miss, but luckily we have great grooming. We've got Dan Botswanis and the Leadville Nordic Council will groom the golf course. Like the second it can be groomed, it will be groomed it will, and it will be groomed for as long as it can be. So that has meant a lot of workouts. I have done <laughs> two hours into the dark, starting around four o'clock, going into the dark, up and down a golf fairway. I'm still doing that. I did that back in October for 10 days in a row. And then, um, we got a good snowfall and they groomed the whole course. And I got two days, I think, where I could like do actual loops. And then the next four days, it was up and down a fairway again, double polling. And, um, and, and in the morning, when you're up here where, where I live and, and it's just very, very hilly, um, four to 10% grades everywhere. No flat sections really at all. Um, there, well, I shouldn't say that there is like a, a 600 meter sort of single track trail that winds into the woods and it's kind of flat. And so if I want to have like an easier part of my run, I will run back and forth on that. So again, hamster wheel training, right up and down the same loops an hour in the morning and then going down to the, into town and doing two hours of double pulling. I've been trying to do that almost every day. But a few days I've missed, and the last couple of days it kind of warmed up so much I actually took my mountain bike out and uh, went around on the gravel roads. But again, kind of all that I could do was this like 1.1 mile loop around the lower lakes. So, man, some of the the residents I think think I'm just nuts out there because it's just loop after loop. But listening to Ben Shapiro, listening to a little bit of Dividing Line, listening, I just started listening to Joe Rogan, uh, his podcast a little bit, because I got drawn in uh, because of a Lance Armstrong episode. Uh, If you've been following my show, I kind of was on a biking kick, read Lance Armstrong, like three different biographies uh, about Lance and uh, another biography Tyler Hamilton wrote. So just kind of went all in for whatever reason, doing like a totally deep dive on Lance Armstrong. Then I spent a whole day watching the documentary that was made. And then I listened to a three hour interview that he had with Joe Rogan from like two years ago. 
<clears throat> so I did this Lance Armstrong thing that was pretty cool. And then I was like, oh, what about uh, Joe Rogan? He's kind of like, you know, we're like the poor, poor man, Joe Rogan. We have guests on and we interview them and we ask them tough questions. And Joe Rogan kind of does the same thing. He doesn't really shy away. Um, he has some vulgar language, which is annoying. He he'll th- He is a casual uh, curse word kind of guy. Um, but it's not enough, I don't think, where where you are too distracted by it, but it's certainly not the kind of show you'd want to have like a 10-year-old in the room with, I don't think, um, uh, because of that, which is too bad. But also the topics he he addresses are are often, again, he gets into it with with a lot of his guests, uh, just cuts right to the chase, so to speak, and, and doesn't shy away from any question. So that's been kind of what I've been listening to. And, and every time I listen or read a, a chapter, I always think, oh, man, this would be great material for skeologians. We should do it. And I haven't had any time to collect my thoughts and, and really write out this is the point I, I took from it and what I want to teach. So uh, this show will probably be another rambling dissertation. So if it feels that way, I'm sorry, but I, I, I do. I need, like, I need a few days to, to like organize and plan out some good shows um, but I thought, you know, the fan base is probably just pining for another episode. So give them what they deserve and speak to the masses, right? Um, our, of our 40,000 listeners listening worldwide on Shovel Lake Public Radio. Uh, I know they miss my voice. So that's kind of what I thought is instead of planning out something, maybe just get on here and start to talk. And And I am drinking out of my... The original Cedar Skier mug. Mm. The original Cedar Skier mug was designed by my wife, given to me when we were in Maine. It says, I'd rather be skiing on it. That's what it says, I'd rather be skiing. It has a picture of this lady doing like the super old school wood skis, one ski pole that's like taller than her, right? Like like we're talking 1100s AD skiing. And then it says Cedar Skier on it. We made some other mugs, the Cedar Skier podcast mugs, and those I left in Minnesota. We have two of them. There's only two that exist in the world. Um, I guess we could order more. So if you hear this right now and you, you want a mug, you want to support the program, reach out. But we all, I'm also thinking I need to, to get some more apparel. And so I have a great idea for – this is a little bit inspired and, and brings us into our topic, but I have a great idea for a T-shirt for, for skiologians. And it would be kind of from the chapters I just read. You've got um, marketing here. You're going to hear some marketing here. Uh, on the front, you know, say skiologians, all right, and then like, I don't know, Thursdays at 10 a.m., Shovel Lake Public Radio. But then on the back, have one of those like bathroom art drawings, you know, where it has just like the person that's no facial expression really and have him raising his hand up and have like two boxes. One one is a picture of a guy and he's raising his hand and he's saying, you can't prove the Bible with or the Bible contradicts logic and science and reasoning, you know, something like that. And then on the other side, you have the picture of the Bible, like really just plain art and underneath it say the necessary precondition for logic science and reasoning right funny i know right and everyone will laugh at it or be offended actually i'll say everyone will be offended and like 0.01 percent of people the same amount that that die from coronavirus will be um will laugh at it that's one marketing idea i have another one though i have two commercial ideas I told my wife this because one thing we talk about on the show all the time is consistency. 
right? Inconsistency, kind of the, the sign of the failed argument. And I said, oh, I think this would be great. This came to me on my bike ride. Excellent idea. A, uh, a video commercial, kind of like the ESPN Sports Center ones. You know, they kind of do like uh, inside the office, just a normal uh, normal day type thing, people working, and then there'd be something weird, and then have the white lettering pop up and say something. Um, and so what I would do is have us in the kitchen, like making breakfast or something, uh, getting ready for the day with our masks on inside with our masks on. And then we, we like take our masks off, kiss each other, you know, just like a couple would affectionate and then put the mask back on or, or kiss each other and then like put the mask back on, but then have us like share, you know, a knife that we're, that we're uh, spreading peanut butter on our toast or something, you know, just totally sharing germs in every way, but then wearing the masks and then having the white lettering say something about, you know, inconsistency bother you listen to the ski podcast. So I don't know. May, I mean, we'll have to get our data research people on that to see uh, what kind of marketing effect that would have. I think that that's good. Uh, anyway, so last, Oh, I wanted to bring up one of the shows and this I would like to kind of address uh, in a future show, maybe maybe actually plan this out better, is on the last Joe Rogan podcast I listened to um, when I was on a bike ride in, in a warm part of Colorado. It was with Abigail Schreier. And if you're not sure who that is, she is the author, L.A.-based, who wrote the book irreversible damage the transgender craze seducing our daughters um and i i, I pulled up her wikipedia page just to a little bit more uh, searching and i didn't really know totally who she was but it says she went to university of oxford oxford columbia and yale law school um and then also if you if you google her like today i did there's there's some top stories you know one with uh ben shapiro from pittsburgh post gazette that says they want to shut you up um and it's about how um, basically, uh, you know, her book almost got canceled on Amazon. This book that was written, right? They, I think for a while it was. Yeah, it says when the f- book first came out months back, Amazon quickly moved to prevent her from advertising it. Um, even though books openly stumping for hormone treatment for minors suffering from gender dysphoria have meant no such ban. Um, and then people kind of raged back, like, you can't do that. And, uh, and now her book's, you know, going crazy. Because at Target, they took it down. They took it down everywhere, right? And so there was this big deal about that. And that's kind of where she got some attention. But she was on Joe Rogan, I think. I think it was a little little while ago the show was. I don't think it was, like, that recent. Maybe maybe within a year, because the book, I think, was a 2018 book. Um, but basically, the book is about an assessment of the psychological phenomenon known as rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is where groups of psychologically vulnerable young girls begin to self-diagnose as transgender after one member of a peer group, peer group does so. And the, so the positives about this book are one, it's really empirically driven. It has a lot of data. Apparently I haven't read the book. So again, I want to do a show after I read this, but this is what I've heard and what she said and multiple sources heard this from James White. Now Joe Rogan, uh, Ben Shapiro has talked about a little bit too. So the book, um, has a lot of data and research in it. Uh, and I think the main, the main citation is a 2018 academic paper, 
um, and kind of the, the the paper suggests that some teenage girls might express unease over their gender kind of because of that peer pressure or undiagnosed mental health issues. Also, Schreier is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Hmm. But but she is a secularist. She's not a Christian. And White makes this clear, too. You're not you're not reading a book here that's written by someone with um, a of a worldview that's that's founded in reality. Uh, so it, the, you got to keep that in mind. And when I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast, this was super evident when they would, <laughs> they, they spent a lot of time kind of going like, well, when would it, when, when is it right for a parent to encourage their son or daughter to, um, to have uh, surgery or start taking hormones? And, you know, they were talking like, like we got to toe this line, which, Again, it, it was it was frustrating a little bit to listen to this, and and I I almost I contemplated if I was more prepared. Again, I I would have tried to take clips from that show, and and kind of show you what I mean. But if you want to listen to the Joe Rogan one with him, uh, with Abigail Schreier, you'll notice what I'm talking about when they when they make claims, and you're just like, ah, oh, given the biblical worldview, this is this is not this is not you know like can't you see your internal inconsistency, uh. uh showing its ugly head here is emerging out of the, out of the hole. Like this is, this is the problem. And, and if you didn't think this way, it wouldn't be. But um, the, anyway, the, the, the valuable part of this book is because she's not, she isn't a Christian. She has a lot of advantages to her. And so she's able to interview parents, teenagers, transgender adults, uh, even some detransitioners. So those who had undergone treatment then regretted it. She has access to a lot of people that a Christian want and James White brings that up, uh, and well, when he's talking about the book, that that it is pro- it's actually kind of a good thing for this movement that Abigail Schreier wrote this book, uh, and and I would totally agree. Um, now, even though the foundational argument she's going to make uh, isn't based off of the Bible, so it's not it's not based off of the the reality of the created order of the Creator, but but it's still um, it's probably because of that it's going to be received by by more people probably they're gonna they're gonna validate it quicker and and i think that's a positive in general um but this this whole issue the thing i kind of made the connection to in my my summer reading and and other stuff i've listened to in general is this connected totally to the book we had had on the podcast before called uh the new absolutes and also connected to Dinesh D'Souza when I read his book earlier this summer, The One and the Great Lie, I think that's what, what it was. Anyway, anyway those, those books together kind of introduced me to what was happening in the 20s and 30s with Planned Parenthood um, and just kind of this, this movement, right, that was spearheaded to, I guess, ultim- well, if you take Planned Parenthood, Right. The, the new absolutes, what they talk about, Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, uh, sort of that the left way left extreme. OK, I'm not I'm not here bashing just your regular Democrat here today. We're talking far left people, um, the, the, the far eastern bloc, leftist, leftist ideology, OK, communist, socialist, that movement with the, the let's look at the Great Reset now, currently, present day. This idea that the population needs to be completely reduced by a lot. Like that is the, the push of this movement is a reduction in population, 
um, power to a very, very small few and, and then everyone else living on like this equality of outcome. Okay. And they've already done that in, you know, Soviet Russia back in the 1920s. And now I'm kind of reading through the, the gulag. What's that book? The gulag one. Uh, I don't know. I started reading it. My, my brother gave it to me about from Alexander Schneitschen something, <laughs> if you're if you're an academic, you know what I'm talking about. The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solchen Sign. He talks about this uh, uh, how how the Soviet uh, communist movement came to be, basically, and and all the things that, that he realized happening socially. You know, you could you could compare them to what's going on today with the Great Reset. Basically, it's 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 a little frightening. So. Anyway, that, there's that. There's the reduction of population, this movement by Planned Parenthood, right, abortion. And originally that was like a way to reduce, um, uh, really to kill off, um, like, uh, it was a really racist thing, right? Like Margaret Sanger was wanted to essentially create this ideal race, almost like what Hitler would want, you know, the Aryan superior race. And this was a means of doing it. But and 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 that's, they kind of... <laughs> Oh man, it's just so frightening. All these things coming together, but but reduction in population, and uh, that's that fits in with climate change. It fits in with the Great Reset. It fits in with all this super far left movement that you're seeing. And the other thing now is this transgender movement. And what James White recently was kind of bringing up on his show, the dividing line, is he was mentioning how well how convenient, you know, like if we can just convince all these all these women out there to uh, just voluntarily destroy their bodies so that they can't reproduce. Like that's another great way we can reduce the population, right? And you see the humiliation of masculinity come right alongside this, the blurred, there is no division between genders. It's, it's all working towards um, um, satisfying that, that movement for sure. Now, if, if you want to say that I'm crazy and, and, all this is crazy. That's fair you, to say that like that's just conspiratorial. Sure, there's there's logical connections there, but it still might not come to fruition. I, I absolutely can stand alongside you and go, I hope you're right. Um, and but I also can say these things do logically connect. So that that'd be my. Argument. I'm not here saying like James White gets a little bit like he'll say, hey. I'm just telling you how it's going to be. So in six months, I'll, I'll gladly hear your apology when, when everything happens exactly the way I prophesied it to happen. You know, it's like, wow, come on, you know, and granted he's been right about a lot of stuff. He did totally predict everything that would happen with the shutdowns, with the election and with uh, now coming with these vac the vaccination, right? Like you're going to need to have the vaccination to basically do anything. Uh, he's, he called all that back in like February or back in March, right? When everything first happened, so he, he sees things and he makes those connections and then he makes predictions and I'm standing right along going like, yep, th those are all reasonable, but you still can't say like with certainty it will happen. Um, because I think another thing I heard on Ben Shapiro's show is talking about the great reset is the great reset. They want to, they want to take the coronavirus pandemic and, and wield it, uh, or weld some power using it, right? It's, that's the lever with which they're going to reset all these things, reset society, reset global economics, make a push for climate change, and basically grasp, try to grasp power, right? <laughs> that's, that's what the Great Reset is. And he's, Shapiro said, you know, historically, we've seen this happen a lot. We've seen this um, even, and I would even say like with Al Gore 20 years ago, right? Climate change was one thing they kind of tried to do, I think, to to scare the masses into into following one kind of direction 
um, it's like, here, here's global warming. This is real. This is going to kill everyone. And it's, it's a really, it's a very serious thing. And because of it, we need to do X, Y, Z. And you saw, you saw that try to happen. And I think they kind of were like, after a while, when, when there was, it was not a definitive claim and there wasn't, um, there wasn't, yeah, it, it wasn't, I, I, I don't want to, I want to hesitate and say just like it wasn't real, but it wasn't obviously um, uh, as extreme as, as they had hoped and as effective as they had hoped. So then it kind of died out and we were back to living normal life. And now COVID's come up and oh my gosh, right? This is the new thing that we can, let's, let's use COVID and maybe we can use this to get the great reset. And Shapiro's kind of like, all through you know the centuries, they've been trying to use never use a great uh, uh, or never waste a great. Uh, what's what's the word? Ah, he quoted someone never never waste a, a great tragedy or something like that. But basically, when there's calamity or or some dramatic thing that happens in history, right? Some people who are power hungry are going to try and use it to wield power, and that's what we're seeing now and today with COVID. We saw it with climate change before. We've seen it with other things. And so I would just caution those who are like doomsdayers to go. You know, we can still sit and hope. Hey, hopefully this will not actually happen because we've seen similar things happen in the past. But I do think this is all connected to what Abigail Schreier is talking about because it's kind of one of those cogs in the wheel. And so if, if, you, if you're missing that, you know, then I would just say uh, look into some of these other texts and make those connections, synthesize these ideas, right? This idea uh, – and this is even racism is in there because, again, Planned Parenthood was kind of started in that same ideology that of eliminating – a certain group of people. I mean, that's scary and sad and people don't talk about that. And, uh, but it's, it's true. And, and so there, there's that connected with Planned Parenthood, with this transgender craze, with the great reset, they're all related. It's crazy how they're all related. So I really want to read Abigail Schreier's book. And if, after I do, I guess we could do maybe a show on it and I can bring some quotes up. Uh, but I just want to mention that, that that's kind of on my, my radar of next, next things to do. And if someone has read that and they have comments on it, you know, from a Christian perspective, uh, what it was, my thoughts on the interview in general, I think the, the key data points she brought up was something to do with, um, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, the number of transgender high school age kids, it was like one in 10,000. And now it's one in a hundred, you know, like it's it's 1%. Uh, which is so high. And she made a, an interesting claim that was saying, if this is just because now we're in a much more friendly uh, society, so people feel more comfortable coming out, why aren't we seeing 50 and 60 year olds who were in hiding now coming out? You know, and, and she actually, you know, she, she did a great job logically breaking this down. Like that's not, that's an inconsistent argument. So I was happy that she did that, you know, just at- attacked it right away. Like there's, that can't be, the reason, because otherwise you'd be seeing people in other age groups coming coming out. That was a good point that she made. And then the other one, basically, the kind of I think our cornerstone thesis is is saying, you know, look, we've had things, and we have things like anorexia, bulimia, um, some of these um, psychological. Uh, I don't know if, if disorder is the right the right word of saying it, but um, things that are peer pressure and group peer group related. <laughs> And what you see is, is depending on a person's demeanor and um, gender and, and personality makeup, you know, some people are more susceptible to those. And when one or two in a peer group moves that way, then others follow. And she's kind of bringing up the point that, 
Um, this is happening in the transgender movement and then provides all this evidence. Okay, and and then she also brings up some scary things in terms of the schools are pushing this movement, which is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Like counselors, admin, teachers, if a student is even slightly questioning or in that category of a potentially would be willing to consider um, being transgender and coming out as transgender, they are pushed to the front. They are encouraged and praised by teachers, admin, and counselors to do that, to take that step forward, to just go, yes, embrace that. And Schreier is not coming from a religious perspective saying this is dangerous. She's literally coming from a physical standpoint of saying, how can you do that, you know, when... How, how can you do that when, when the consequences of making that step forward are devastating, devastatingly permanent? They're devastating, and they are devastatingly permanent. They're, they're really both. And she's kind of coming at it like saying, this is weird. You know, like they're, the, they're, the counselors aren't telling parents what's going on. They hide it from mom and dad because to them, they see mom and dad as potentially being enemies, which which they are in the sense that if the goal is to immediately transition a child, then of course mom and dad, even if mom and dad are behind it, which many of the people she interviews are, like like many of these people, these parents they're interviewing are people who are totally progressive in the sense that they're they're all for transgender, but for, when it's their child, they're going, well, shouldn't we kind of be patient? I want to know more information. Let's wait. Let's wait this out. And on the other, and the school's like, we're going to just hide this from mom and dad because we want to make this happen immediately. Immediately. You know, and so the, the, it's very strange, right? Like the fact that the schools are hiding it, the fact that the schools are pushing it, and 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 even from the other side with parents who would be for transgenderism, completely for it, they're still being sheltered from what's going on in their child's life because they're still seen as being someone who might put up a resistance to the uh, transitioning, you know? So I think that's interesting how really take Christianity out of this entirely, take the Bible out of this entirely, the people within this movement are going to eventually fight each other <laughs> and, and kind of kill each other, you know, and, and it was very briefly brought up, but not, a you know, you could do a whole show on this, but the whole idea of that the homosexuality, um, the gay lesbian uh, crowd, I guess I'll say, or group, they, they're not really excited about the transgender movement or they shouldn't be because it completely undermines what they are trying to support too. If there's such a thing as transgenderism, then, then from a logical foundational standpoint, we can't have gay and lesbian. Um, and so, so even though right now there's, they're on the same team and there's the clubs that are LGBTQ plus, right. They, within each other, there is a massive rift and fact, uh, you know, that's, uh, fractitious it's, it's there. So, um, I think that's just kind of interesting that that Christians uh, they don't even have to necessarily like come in the middle and try and try and uh, cause any problems or expose anything because they're exposing themselves for this inconsistency. But I think that that uh, the thing I was thinking of was some of the counselors that I've worked with at schools and how wonderful they are as people. And how there's no way that they realize that the work they're doing is if if the if all this you know if you're if you're if you're grasping 
the framework I'm laying out here, right? That, that the ultimate movement is, a, is like a reduction in population, kind of that great reset. And, and a key tool are people who are going to encourage citizens of our world to mangle their bodies permanently so they can't reproduce. Uh, those people are going along willingly, maybe unable to see what role they're playing in that entire wheel, you know, of movement. And I think that's the part that scares me the most. Like if you could sit a counselor down and explain to them everything we've just mentioned and kind of go, okay, do you see like the role you're playing in here? Do you really want to be a part of this? Like, do you really want to be the person on the front line who's telling young, young women to, to destroy their bodies forever? Because ultimately there are the, the, the select few group in power is desiring a great reset. And to do that, they need to reduce the population. Like, you know, I, I don't think they are. I don't think in their hearts, they're like, yes, I see that. And I agree with it. And I want to go full forward with it. I, I don't, I, the P the concerts I know, uh, love kids. They want to help kids. And right now they're being deceived and like, this is what to do to help kids. And you should hide this from mom and dad because ultimately it's for the, the kids better. I, I think that is what they're thinking at least. And the deception, the level of deception is, is kind of frightening. So I don't know, just, just some, Step back thought, that's what I, I was thinking right away, is, is many of my teacher friends, my experiences in school, where that is really being pushed and where you are almost seeing it, guys, like this is, this is true too, is um, in the middle school, even in, as young as like fifth and sixth grade, you see students who they decide, I'm, gonna, I'm not, you know, Evelyn, I'm Everett now or whatever, and they change. And then that is kind of like the same thing that it's celebrated and it's cool, and they're 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 praised. And Schreier talks about this too, actually. At least she did in her interview with Joe Rogan about just the social celebration that takes place there. And it's like the exact same thing that just peer pressure, um, you know, desiring to fit in, desiring to be a part of something. Um, it, it's it has nothing to do with a real biological reality um that they are actually a female or a male right and scientifically the number of people who are um um, have both genders it's so small um it's just it's it the percentage of it is so small you you should almost never see it i do kind of think there is something to be said about it's 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 to use the word craze is maybe Maybe not right, but but there it definitely seems to be a little bit that way. Like it's the cool thing to do now for kids, so, and and that's just it's frightening, right? When the cool thing to do is to have a fidget spinner, it's one thing. But when the cool thing to do is transition, which means then you're going to take a drug that will permanently ruin your body, prevent you from. Um, having a period, pre- ruin your breasts, prevent you from experiencing orgasm later in life, prevent you, uh, d- totally destroy the normal hormone- hormonal functions of your body, prevent growth. Uh, when it's that permanent, you really want to give that, like put that in the hands of a, of an eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, even 14 year old. I, I don't think that is wise. And then when the data is showing too, that within a year, most as in over 99% of these students or kids, like they grow out of it. That's what Shrey is bringing up to you. It's like most everyone will grow out of this. If they are feeling dysphoria, they almost always grow out of it. 
Um, and that, that's the part I would say, even biblically, you could, you could speak to as saying, I think that could definitely be real, like gender dysphoria, where you're con- either confused or like would rather be the opposite gender. I think, I think I know a lot of people who, who have felt that at some point in their life, men and women, you know, whether it's like a four-year-old, you know, boy who's like fascinated by, uh, uh, girls or whatever, or, or a six-year-old boy who, who sees that and it just doesn't really get it yet. Or you have a girl entering, you know, puberty and it's like, oh, well, I, I don't want to have to deal with all the things that a woman deals with. Or, or I would just rather be a guy. Or I think I have more personality traits as a guy, right? I'm more adventurous and tomboyish and i more masculine in every way. Like, I, I, I do think that's real. And, I'm, and whether that's part of like our sinful nature, I'm not really sure if the Bible really speaks to that, right? To just chalk it up to, well, it's just sin, right? That, that we have that, a rejection of a created order, a rejection of how the creators laid us out. Or if it's actually just, you know, within the genders and the gender roles that God has, has created, there is variability wherein you have men who have larger uh, percentages of of traits that are are feminine, and they just have more of them, right? Because we're all diverse, and and we I think certainly we can have there can be men who have more feminine traits, women who have more masculine traits, and still totally be women and be happy and and be fully feminine, right? Even though they have masculine traits, and I don't think God looks down at them as as rejecting the created order more, but I think there's, there's that fine line where like the potentiality of them going too far and rejecting the creator and going, no, 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 I have, I'm experiencing as a, as a woman, I'm experiencing some of these masculine traits and therefore I must be a man truly, right? Like I, I think there's, there's room for variability because God's created us as diverse, interesting creatures, but he's also created categories and created roles for male and female. And I think the sin part would be us just contorting it to an extreme, like we do with all things. And so I don't think it's like, what I'm saying there, I guess, is I don't think it's a sin. I don't think the Bible would say it's a sin if if you as a man are enjoying certain things that, that typically would fit into the female role, as long as you know I'm a man and I'm masculine and that's that's my God-given role. And as a husband or a father... I, I'm striving to fulfill that, but oh, hey, by the way, I make a really good apple pie, which a lot of men can't do, and uh, you know something like that. Or a female who's like, hey, I, I can change the oil in a car, <laughs> and in today's societal roles, that seemed seen as a, a masculine trait. And and you might argue back that saying those sorts of examples are simply societal. Okay, fair enough. But what about the female who actually has a leadership? Uh, a masculine leadership trait, and that is strong in them, right? Is Does that mean that's that's really a man living in that woman, or is it just a woman who has a higher percentage of that specific masculine trait? And I would say it's more the latter. Well, anyway, I feel like I will just keep rambling if I continue uh, talking about that, so I'll try and get on That'll be the next book I'll order at some point or keep listening to it. But just want to let you know, yeah, trying to listen to a variety of sources. And I think I've done a pretty good job of that in terms of listening to anyone from Joe Rogan to James White to Ben Shapiro, all talking with the same person about the same topics. Um, <clears throat> Dinesh D'Souza, I guess, too. Um, 
And it's interesting when you take it from those perspectives because, you know, a guy like Joe Rogan, is, as interesting as he is and as good of shows and he has a great following, and to me that, that all means nothing in terms of is he <clears throat> actually good at um, what he does. I don't think that's, that, that necessarily is proof of that. <clears throat> it's interesting to listen to him pose questions and, as a Christian, realize the lack of a foundational underpinning to them. Sometimes that's frustrating. And sometimes I, I just can't listen to people like that for that long because it gets so annoying to hear them um, discuss and argue or rationalize about things when they are ignoring, again, the necessary precondition for all intelligibility. So anyway, <clears throat> I want to switch gears here. And we had started talking about the hermeneutical spiral. This is from, again, that book, Understanding Genesis. It's a great read. I think those of you who really desire truth and to know why the Bible can be the foundational source of authority for us, uh, that that's kind of the beginning. And I'd say I would recommend something on presuppositional apologetics to know why that is. This book's kind of the how. Okay, now, so you, you agree that... Um, um, we have to start with the Bible now. Where do we go from there? How do we interpret the Bible? And how can we know that that there is only, that this is the correct way of interpreting the Bible? And the whole, you know, if you had to summarize this in like one sentence, you'd have to, you'd have to say something like scripture interprets scripture. And, and then the next question that you'd be begging is how do you know that or why? And this book gives you the details on why. And, and it's not like, it is, it's a long read, but there's every single you know, portion of it where he's teaching is, is clear teaching. He's not wandering around and he's not trying to deceive or anything like that. He is pointing things out. And then he does spend quite a few chapters actually just, you know, he'll take uh doctor. I think it's Ross. Uh, there's another, there's another Christian. Uh, yeah. Dr. Ross. That's the one he, he has discussions about, about Genesis and the flood. And he kind of, the Ross believes in a, um, like a millions of years evolutionary interpretation of Genesis. So he points out through a lot of pages, like why that doesn't really work. And then he does the same thing with the flood. So, so don't be intimidated by like the size of this book, because I would say, you know, the majority of the second half is like him literally just citing that and quoting Ross and then trying to discuss and refute it. And that's a large portion of the book. So the majority of the book is, or the majority of the beginning of the book is really great in terms of if you've never heard of hermeneutics and you don't understand anything about it, the first 200 pages of this book is awesome. <clears throat> so we left off kind of talking about the hermeneutical spiral, and I'm just going to read to you the, uh, the, the three pages where we kind of left this off. Okay, so this is called the logical necessity of knowledge spirals. I think we kind of started touching on this, but we'll just dive back into it. So here's, here it goes. It says, how do people learn language? How do they learn what words mean, what the rules of grammar are, how to conjugate verbs, and so forth? Most students learn about such things from a teacher. And what does the teacher use to teach students language? He or she uses language, words, grammar, verbs, and so on. Clearly, students must already have some knowledge of language in order to understand the teacher. But if they already know language, then what is the purpose of them taking a class on language? The obvious answer is that students can improve their knowledge of language by taking a class on language. A student need only a rudiment, rudimentary knowledge of language in order to benefit from the words of his or her teacher. There's nothing fallacious or unreasonable about a teacher using language to teach students to have a better understanding of language. If that's perfectly reasonable, then why can't the Bible teach us to have a better understanding of the Bible? <clears throat> Consider the laws of logic by which we reason. 
How would we demonstrate to ourselves or to our students that laws of logic are correct or reasonable? We would certainly, we could certainly construct a valid sound argument showing the necessity of various laws of logic. But in that argument, we would have to use laws of logic in order to draw any valid conclusion whatsoever. Should we then abandon logic since some principles of logic must be known in advance of their own demonstration? Of course not. By using principles of logic, we can investigate these principles and improve our understanding of logic. There's nothing fallacious about that. If we can use logic to examine and improve our understanding of logic, why can't we use scripture to examine and improve our understanding of scripture? Even in the realm of science, some types of knowledge are acquitted in a spiral, nonlinear fashion. A student might be asked to measure the mass of some object using a balance scale. The object of unknown mass is placed on one side of the balance, causing that side to tip down. Then the student puts some combination of known masses on the other side of the scale until the two plates are level. <clears throat> the sum of the known masses reveals the mass of the object. But this is not a one-step process. The student does not initially know what combination of known masses will cause the scale to balance. He must make an initial guess based on how heavy the unknown mass feels in his hand as compared with the known masses. It is exceedingly unlikely that his initial guess will be exactly right, but it will probably be relatively close. The direction in which the scales tip after this guess informs the student whether he should add or subtract known masses, and the speed at which the scales adjust tells him how close he is to the right answer. As long as the student is willing to adjust the known masses according to the readings on the balance, it will not be long until he has a precise answer. Likewise, precise interpretations of scripture sometimes require multiple steps and considerable study. <clears throat> because of our sin nature, we prefer quick one-step solutions, but some things just aren't that way. And the scriptures indicate this. Pause right there. The scriptures indicate this. <clears throat> not, um, not Jason Lyle. The scriptures indicate this. As one example, the Bible teaches that sanctification is progressive. It is not instantaneous, but something we should pursue daily. That's from 2 Peter 3.18 and Hebrews 12.14. Sanctification is the process of becoming set apart as holy to God. Although we are saved by God's grace, we don't immediately become perfectly righteous in practice, Romans 7, 19. It is a lengthy process, Romans 5, 3 through 4, James 1, 3 through 4, one that ultimately does not reach perfection until we enter heaven. The Bible uses the analogy of silver and gold being purified by fire, Zechariah 13, 9, Psalm 66, 10, Job 23, 10, Proverbs 17, 3, Malachi 3, 3, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. When gold is heated to a liquid state and stirred, impurities float to the top and may be skimmed off. But not all the impurities, impurities are removed in one pass. The process must be repeated until the gold is pure. We might prefer to be instantly perfect at the moment Christ saves us. But regardless of our wishes, the Bible teaches that sanctification is progressive, not instantaneous. What about hermeneutics? The same principle must apply because correct hermeneutics is an aspect of sanctification. Let me read that again. Correct hermeneutics is an aspect of sanctification. Reading the Bible correctly is a moral obligation and therefore something that should improve as people grow in the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.15 We are sanctified by progressively understanding and living God's word. John 17.7 <clears throat> So, the principles of the hermeneutical circle, hermeneutical circle can be summarized as follows. One, People are born, actually, before I read this, the principles, I want to just pause there because I think the point is bringing up that in general, the hermeneutical circle takes time because 
you just like it takes time to learn a language using language or use logic using logic or like the example they gave measuring mass that's a a multi-step process. It's not something that's one step. It's not something that's quick, right? It is progressive. And our sanctification as Christians is progressive. And the argument here is hermeneutics is something that takes work. It takes, and, and by work, I mean time, kind of time, effort, work, and it and it, it's it's not something that you just, you just do t- with time. It has to be actually done correctly, Right. If that student is just trying to figure out the measurement of a weight and he's sitting in a classroom and he takes three hours, but he's not thinking at all. He's not using his faculties. He's just chucking random stuff on the scale just randomly. And he's just like, well, he's got put in three hours of trying to figure out the weight of this. That's not the same thing as the student who is using his faculties, using his um, his reasoning capabilities correctly trying to figure out the weight for three hours. That's a different thing. And I think the same thing is is true with Bible study. It's not enough to just go, I'm going to spend three hours with the Lord today, or I'm going to go under a tree by myself in my Bible for two hours. And that's the same thing as searching for truth as as if it's gold, refining our hermeneutics, being sanctified through correct um, study of the Bible, right? Those are two different things. And he's going to bring up here that you know, we've seen that external documents can play a role in helping us, but only if those external documents are shedding light on the true intentions of the author, meaning you still need to ultimately test everything with Scripture being consistent with Scripture. So if someone, an external document is pointing you in a direction and you test that with Scripture and it doesn't hold up to be consistent with Scripture, you can't buy into it. And, and but but the idea of, before I explain, I guess before he explains, goes on to say what the hermeneutical circle is. Just want to bring up the point that this is a progressive thing. This is part of our sanctification. This is part of the Christian walk, is to pursue correct hermeneutics, and we miss that a lot. I think a lot of people <clears throat> they view a weekly Bible study or a daily Bible study or getting together with friends as the same thing as growing in the knowledge of the Lord through correct hermeneutics and. And it's like, whoa, you know, I, I don't think those are the same things at all. You could sit together uh, and have coffee with friends and spout off a lot of things that aren't true about God, a lot of self-deceiving truths about God, a lot of things that are might be true about your imaginary friend that you call God. And that's not the same thing as worshiping the true God who's revealed himself um, clearly through the Bible. Uh, so that... That's something where I think as a Christian, it's, and that's not to say that it's an individual study, lock yourself in a room and surround yourself with books that tower above your face. I don't think that that is necessarily true at all. It, 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 I think we, we should surround ourselves with brothers that are sharpening us by challenging interpretations. If we bring an interpretation to a brother and say, I, I believe that the Bible is telling, saying this, and that brother can sharpen us by going, well, have you considered if that's true, have you considered the ramifications of this other scriptural truth? I don't see how they could align. And then that, that can be a moment where, where either that brother sharpens you and, and you realize, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Scripture has to be consistent with Scripture, and, and that's not true. I can't believe this interpretation of this verse without it destroying or without me having to literally burn this entire book and pretend it doesn't exist. And I think a lot of Christians, they, they fall into this trap. Where either they don't surround themselves with people, or they only surround they only surround themselves with people who are in agreement with them. And what I mean by that is um, an example. I guess I can think of right off the bat is is people who might deny certain doctrines about salvation, 
they will huddle around with their friends who think the same thing and 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 they will uh strategically avoid the those passages in the bible that when clearly um ex- ex- exegeted uh provide a serious problem for their foundational doctrine <clears throat> so they they huddle around with their friends that that hey we we don't have to let's just ignore Romans 9 okay like or let's let's not really exegete Romans 9 we'll we'll hold it to our position and we'll eisegete into Romans 9 <clears throat> and they do that instead of being a, a Christian and a brother and coming alongside someone with going who's who's just shouting saying hey if you believe that how do you how can you first of all where do you get that exegeted from from these texts and and if so what about the consistency principle what about scripture needing to be consistent with itself you know and and instead of the of uh, that that's i think where the conversation has to be brothers sharpening brothers is is Everyone needs to be on the same page of going, we can agree and hold hands that the scriptures has to be consistent with each other. And let's let down our emotional obligation to certain doctrines or if, if we, and I think that's huge. It's, it's usually emotional. It's not just, you can't just say our intellectual because that is self-contradictory. The Bible <clears throat> is the foundation for logic and, and, and the processes of science. So it's, it's not fair to say, well, I'd love to believe the Bible, but it just it doesn't agree with science. It's like we can't even have science without the Bible. So you're not submitting to uh, the Bible first. And when you say science says that's as we as this book talks about many times, that's a that's a fallacy. Science is not a person that can speak. Science is a process that is fallible that humans use to try to understand things. It's not it's not something that is making um, factual statements that right we we are using science to interpret something it's not something that is giving us there's two steps to that i guess uh, <clears throat> i'm 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 getting off topic a little bit but basically right we use science to try to uh quote interpret nature we are using processes of science which requires us to interpret that to that interpret another thing whereas the bible is a f- infallible source that we can just have given to us and now it's our job to interpret it it's a one step view. So it's not, it's not right to say that science can disagree with the Bible when the Bible is the foundational root of, of science to begin with. But anyway, I think when I read this, this process that hermeneutics is a key element of sanctification, I stopped there and, and thought, this is something that the church needs to hear. Someone needs to preach this, that, <clears throat> that not all, quote, Bible studies are created equal and I think we are sometimes too soft within the church with our brothers and sisters because when we hear that someone is meeting together for Bible study, we rejoice <clears throat> because because it's so rare. We think in church that it's good enough if you are just meeting and calling it Bible study. We we do we think that's we think that's good enough. We think it's good enough if you say I went to church and heard a sermon. We think that's good enough. We don't have a standard that says um, how how are you, what's guiding your your study of the word. How are you determining what's truth? What's guiding the preaching? What kind of preaching is it? You know, um, <clears throat> and 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 I think yeah, we just have way too lax of standards. And and then when when they're when the we're trying to reach the lost, it's like oh well they made it to church. Well that's great as long as they're going to church, you know then that's good enough. Or then maybe a little past it, you know, with some people growing up in a Christian home, the concern is, well, I hope it's a good church. But what does that mean? What does good church mean? And if the standard isn't that they're 
they are doing expository preaching of the word that is that is correctly using correct hermeneutic, correct hermeneutical processes to glorify God as he really has revealed himself. I don't think that's a good church, but I think other people might think it is, you know, because their standard for what a good church is might be the, the composition of the population, the age distribution, or <clears throat> if the music is, quote, good, or if the sermons are short or long, or if there are lots of young families that are nice people. You know, like, uh, I, I just, I think that's in America, especially that's, when, that's how we grade a church. Like, are there, are there nice young people who share my values? And then, you know, like, again, that's good. If by nice young people, you mean Christians and by shared values, you mean the Bible is the ultimate standard. If that's what you mean, then yes, you have found an amazing church. <laughs> and if by great music, you mean, uh, lyrics of worship songs that are expositorily teaching the scriptures, then that is great music, right? And, and if it's glorifying to God and not to the artist, then that's great music. And if by good sermons and good teaching, you mean it's exegetical preaching, then yes, you found a good church. But I think a lot of people think good teaching means the sermon is interesting, and it's not too long, but it's not too short. And it, it convicts them, <laughs> whatever that means, right? It convicts them. They think good music is something that has a good balance between traditional hymns and new music. It's fun to sing. And they think by nice people and nice families, it's people who are generally kind and don't step on toes too much, which is really actually kind of the exact opposite of what uh, you know brothers and sisters in Christ should be. If, if you're not stepping on toes every once in a while, you're probably not sharpening much at all. So I don't know. I think something to think about there. Wow. I don't know how we went down that rabbit hole. Well, let me just quick read so you can think about this. The six, the six elements of the spiral, the circle. Uh, so one, people are born with a prepackaged hermeneutic, basic rules of linguistic inference. By the way, all these claims he does back up with scripture. I'm not going to go search for all of them for you, but they are biblically based. But that first one basically is God created language. He created us with an innate ability to understand language. This one, you don't even really need scriptural evidence as much for just if you've ever seen a baby or, or raised a child, you know that that is true. Okay. Two. Our prepackaged hermeneutic is incomplete and is corrupted due to our sin nature. An important step to recognize that just because we have this prepackaged ability to interpret things, it doesn't mean we're, we're infallible in doing so. And in fact, we are corrupted by this by the fall, by our sinful nature, which means it's it's very possible and very easy for us to read something and interpret it in a way that is not true because of our fallen nature. Three, nonetheless, our initial hermeneutic, along with the language we learn from our family, is sufficient to understand the most basic biblical doctrines. This is especially true in the literal portions of Scripture, as long as we approach such doctrines in a spirit of humility and repentance. So basically what that's saying is, given the basic prepackaged hermeneutic we have, the Bible is uh, per, the perspective perspicuity of the Bible, its its clearest passages are understandable. We can sufficiently understand that. I will say on this point, if you're a really hardened Calvinist reformed person, you might, you, you might be sitting and thinking, or at least I was kind of thinking about what it talks about in the Bible, about the inability of man in its 
heart of stone state to accept the gospel and the truths of the Bible. And I do believe that is true. Like, I think his point here, number three, is still only true for the person that God has chosen and elected to replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. So I think someone whose heart is completely hardened, they would read the clearest portions of scripture and not accept them. Now, could they understand them? Probably. I think so. I, I think there is a distinction there. Like they could un- literally understand what the gospel is, but they certainly would not believe it or accept it because they have a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. So if you're kind of sitting there and you're thinking and wondering where does that fit in, I would say that's where it fits in. Is The Bible is clear in its most basic doctrines to be understood by all, but that does not mean understand will be enable them to accept and believe. That's still up to God. That's still up to the work of the Holy Spirit going heart of stone, heart of flesh, elected, non-elect, right? I, I think that is consistent with that uh, theology. Number four, the, basic, the Bible's basic doctrines have the ability to systematically correct our understanding of hermeneutics. So basically, the Bible, right, we have prepackaged, we can understand language. The Bible's clearest doctrines are clear and understandable, and those clear ones are able to systematically correct and, and show us an understanding of other passages. And so five and six, those steps are basically, it says, when we reread the Bible with our improved hermeneutics, we will understand the Bible even better than we did on the previous past. Our improved understanding of the Bible leads to an even more improved hermeneutic. So basically, that's where the spiral happens. And I wrote this, I tried to summarize in my own words. I said, one, we are born able to communicate. Two, our innate abilities are sufficient to understand the most basic biblical doctrines. And three, the most basic doctrines systematically correct the others. So look at that. I'm smarter than Jason Lyle. I took his six points and made them into three. That's basically what the spiral is. And then the rest of the chapter, he does, he talks about... um, like he goes more in depth. I think there's a couple points that I would be, I maybe could bring up in, in a short amount of time. Um, so I'll just kind of page through and, and bring up some of the things I underlined. Uh, two important rules of hermeneutics. So anytime you're reading something and deciding what does this mean, there's two rules. One, you must have a reason for your interpretation. Two, your reasoning must be self-consistent. I think that's, that's important. I'm trying to teach it to my fifth graders. Like someone was writing an article in my class and he said that he's writing about the election. I know, great topic, getting kids to think really hard. And he said in his article, Trump, for some reason, is complaining when he clearly lost the election. And I said, this is, this is kind, I was kind of coaching him through this. I said, this is a little bit, he was kind of towing the line in his article between an, a true opinion and a true hard news statement because he was kind of using language that was like that, a little bit opinionated. And, and so I said, I was kind of coaching him, like, if you're going to write opinion, you always need to have a reason for your statements. It's not really good enough for someone, like, what if someone just said, well, Biden's calling, him president, pre- calling himself the president when clearly the election was rigged, right? If you just end there and go on to your next thought without giving any reasoning, you're not doing a very good job as a writer to try to persuade anyone. So step one, I think, is pretty obvious that you should have reasons for your interpretation. And this is not really a hard step. The thing is, is most people's reasonings for interpretations are just awful because they're not, they don't follow rule number two. They're not self-consistent. Okay. And, and 
this is as you grow in maturity, I think, and you read more and study more and you, you go through the hermeneutical spiral and you let scripture uh, teach you more about scripture and you submit to that authority of the word, it becomes a lot easier, at least I'm finding, to see where the holes are in really fundamental <clears throat> basic arguments about, about certain doctrine or about arguments, even secular arguments. But, but it, it's even the ones that are a little bit more masked are becoming more evident to me, I think, as a, as a believer. I'm seeing things where it's like, wow, that guy really cannot see that the, the foundational anchor to his position is not something that's from the Bible. It's just totally from an emotional thing he's holding to that a truth that he believe is, believes is truth probably because he was told it when he was like three or four or five or maybe in college, you know, and, 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 and he like, this has to be true. And, he, and they're actually submitting to that as their ultimate authority and, and interpreting scripture in accordance with that, not the other way around, submitting to scripture and letting scripture be the judge. <laughs> it's so it's crazy. There is a whole side of Christianity of people who are not submitted to the Bible as their ultimate authority. And some of them realize it and are totally okay with it. That's like literally what they just kind of think the Bible is another text. Yeah, it's our map for the faith, but it's not the, the foundational ultimate authority. And they're okay with it. And they, they, they say, yes, I mean, science and reasoning is, is my ultimate authority. That's but, but, but by science and reasoning, they don't actually mean that. Sorry, I gotta be careful. They mean popular interpretations of science and reasoning because it's important to distinguish distinguish that because lyle would say all science all logic all reasoning is flowing from a place of the bible so i totally agree with all those things because they're evidence of the bible but your the way you do science the way you interpret science is dependent upon what your ultimate presupposition is so we're all seeing the same evidence but we're interpreting them differently which which is why again that to say like science is my ultimate authority, okay? What what do you even mean by that? Right? It's it's what you mean is the secular way of uh, the secular findings of most scientists. That's what you mean. The secular findings and conclusions that that fallible science scientists have made, because there are Christian scientists who have who have used the same evidence and they're interpreting them from a different presupposition. And thus, that that has different outcomes. Same evidence, same science. Same scientific processes, I should say. <clears throat> so, um, I just think it's interesting how we see those two groups, really, in Christian Christian circles, where the one group is is just way off because they're like, "Yep, science, science is is my ultimate authority." And then there's the other group, though, <clears throat> that they 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 say all the right things. I want, the Bible is my ultimate authority. The Bible should be consistent with itself. But then, because they are emotionally tied to certain core principles, they are confused <laughs> by portions of the Bible and or they don't agree with certain doctrine that is clearly biblically consistent because they don't they don't really like it. It kind of makes them uncomfortable. Um and they're they're kind of like, is that really what the Bible says? Is that really who God is? Wow, I, I that doesn't seem like the God of Jesus loves me. This I know. Like 
the God when I was four, the God that my mom or dad explained to me. That just doesn't seem right. I don't really like that. Kind of like what I'm hearing from over here, but I still want to hold to the Bible is the ultimate authority and the Bible is consistent, but they're not really on board totally with that. And I think those people, those are the, those are the people that I'm like, it's, I get it, but, but here's, here's what you're missing is the, the glorious consistency of scripture will come to, will come to fruition if you allow it to. So dive into the word head first. It's not, it's not something to be embarrassed by the Christian religion. The God of the Bible is not something that you'll be embarrassed by when you study him in his entirety. So this is the next thing when he kind of talks about, so then after those, right, you have to have a reason. You have to be self-consistent. He gives biblical reasons for that. He gives verses for uh, principles. Why, why is that? Why can Jason Lyle say those are the two rules? He gives verses for that. He gives verses for reasoning. And he gives verses for consistency, basically arguing that we have to be consistent because God is self-consistent. He doesn't deny himself. His truths never contradict themselves. Um, and and I don't I don't need to read that all of them out, but we'll keep going. Um, then he kind of talks about how how you do interpretation. So basically, historical is going to interpret poetic. And earlier in the book, he defines how you know what is poetic and what is historical. This is a part of the book that I really learned a ton of things about. Like I didn't really realize that in the Old Testament, <clears throat> if something's poetic, it will have certain Hebrew um, constructions, grammatical constructions that indicate it's clearly poetic, and it will have certain Hebrew constructions that indicate it's very literal, and it's, it's like intentionally trying to be literal. I, I didn't know that that really existed in the Bible, but it has certain phrases and ways that they order their language and their words that indicate that. So I thought that was really interesting to learn about. Um, and, and that comes into play in the first five chapters of Genesis pretty significantly. Um, keep going through this chapter here. We have talks about symbolism, other principles of hermeneutics. Okay. Implicitly found in scripture, Bible repudiates relativism. Yep. 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 I'm just kind of looking for like the key underlying ones that I wanted to bring up for our show. See, sorry, I didn't do show prep this time around. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> the Bible refutes deconstructionism and implicitly endorses the one meaning principle in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In verse 10, Paul states, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world that no kind is without meaning. The Bible uses language and indicates that language always has meaning. Thus, the Bible has meaning. Furthermore, each of its affirmations has one primary meaning because each is from God who denounces double mindfulness as sinful. Psalm 119, 113, James 1, 8, and 4, 8. The fact that people can often understand the meaning of a proposition is confirmed in texts such as Ephesians 3, 4, which states, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This demonstrates that, at least in some cases, reading the text results in understanding. The knowledge of language is necessary for understanding a particular proposition is demonstrated in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 14, 11. <clears throat> Here Paul says, if, if, I, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Paul explains that those who speak in an unknown language will, will not benefit those who don't know the language. Quote, for no one understands, but... In his spirit, he speaks mysteries, 1 Corinthians 14, 2. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. That's 14, 9. 
the notion that we may interpret Scripture according to our wishes is sharply refuted by Christ. <clears throat> so those of you out there who are just angry and upset that the Bible can't just be this, like, book that we all can have a fun book club and you can read a verse and then we can all go around in a circle and say, this is what it means to me and we can all be right. Um, first of all, that's not true about any book. That's not true about any book. If you take uh, the, the, the logical, necessary conclusion of language is that the author has one intention. In order for language to work, it has to have that. And it's interesting that people who disagree with that will make arguments with language assuming that their intention is true. So I mean by that is someone might go, oh, I totally disagree with that. I think that language can have multiple meanings, blah, blah, blah. And they write that out using language, expecting me to read that and correctly get his intention that language has multiple meanings. So it's a self-refuting proposition that language has multiple meanings. <laughs> and, and if you're still confused about that, you can do one of two things. One, you can either just trust me, it's self-refuting, a self-refutation, or you can think about it harder, okay? So if you write something down, if you write down a sentence that says language can ha or, or, or words can have more than one meaning or this sentence can have more than one meaning or language in general can have more than one meaning, if you write that down and then give it to me and I read it, you are assuming that I am interpreting that by its one meaning, because if there are, if language does have multiple meanings, then then what I could actually be reading is language only has one meaning, right? Because I could just interpret your sentence however I want. So it's it it's self uh, it's a self refuting statement. That so that that's kind of the the, the principle I would I would just argue is is if you're someone who thinks that logic is real and reasoning is real and the laws of logic are something that govern this universe, then you, you have to be held to a, the account that, that, every, uh, that, that the Bible, the author has one intention. There is one intention and one interpretation. Now, again, this does not mean sitting in a circle. We could all read a verse and we could all talk about, if there's seven of us, we could have seven, seven different... Um, impacts that that verse has had on our lives we could read that and go this is how it impacted me we could have someone say it and read yeah this is this this is what this verse has meant to me <clears throat> I, i'm i'm okay with that to a degree um but if we're, if we're gonna sit around and go what does this verse mean actually mean what is the author's intention it is not biblical or even logical to have us sit around a circle and come up with seven different interpretations and then go, yep, all seven are right. If we come up with seven different interpretations as Christians, we should sit around with each other and go, which of these interpretations is consistent with the rest of Scripture? Which of these interpretations is taking into effect the context, the Hebrew construction of the words, the author's meaning, the author's audience, all those things, right? Like to find the author's intent. That's good Bible study, sitting around in a circle and doing that. Not just being, oh, I don't really want to offend this person. If that's what they think the verse means, let's not even go into it, right? <laughs> it's like, well, and this is why, like, um, you know, the pursuit of consistent theology that's grounded in Scripture is so important because when we don't even consider that as like a viable thing that Christians should be doing, well, now you are going to end up sitting in a circle of seven people and you're going to say, you know, when you say that that verse means that, 
I'm not, I, I don't understand how that can be consistent with James chapter 2. Or I don't understand how that can be consistent with Romans 5. And I, I know that the Bible has to be consistent with itself. You know, and, and instead of that person going, oh, that's a great point. They're going to go, I hate you. You're a bigot. And I can think what I want about the Bible. And you should just shut up. Or, you know, we're not going to be friends anymore. I think sometimes Christians do that to each other, <laughs> which is just stupid. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah. So... That's what that brought up here. Uh, the inerrancy principle confirmed throughout the scripture. The Bible on the perspicuity of the Bible. I was kind of wondering, does the Bible actually say that it can be clearly understand, understood? There's some verses in there that it gives. From your precepts, I get understanding. David said, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Simply reading, reading God's word results in understanding. That It explicitly refers to... Um, perspicuity, and it implicitly teaches it as well, implicitly and explicitly. And that shouldn't surprise us, because ultimately God created language. So if he created language, and he's an om- omnipotent, omniscient God, he's all-powerful, and he creates language, do you think he's going to be able to create it, able us able to communicate? Of course he is. And he still has to bend down to us to express himself through language and to communicate through us with us through language. That That's a reality, too, but... Um, that doesn't mean language isn't sufficient to get across what God intends for it to get across. Just because God is way bigger than language. Oh, man. So then uh, page 186, 187 of this chapter, I kind of touched on this a little bit about the whole, the hardening of the heart. Those who refuse to believe and, and lack understanding, it's not the Bible's fault. It is their fault. It's always their fault. It's, it's the hardness of their heart rebellion against God, what Paul talks about, self-deluded ignorance. And, and this is interesting, God honors their wish. This is the line. Um, they would prefer, this is referring to hard-hearted people, they would prefer to serve a God of their own imagination, a God that is pleasing to their desires, rather than submit to the living God. <laughs> they prefer to live in self-deluded ignorance, James 1.22. And God honors their wish. Wow. So those who are hard-hearted and hate God and refuse to submit to him and want to, want to submit to other gods, God says, okay, that's what you want? Sure. Right? Now, the uh, Reformed theologian inside of me goes, yeah, and God is creating people and decreeing people to have hard hearts, right? Like, that's part of, he, and, and it, the mystery is, I think, in why God does that. Okay, and don't worry, that's a valid question. In fact, it's been asked before, and it's been asked in Romans 9. They say, how can God take some people, create them as vessels of destruction, and others as vessels of righteousness? That's what people, Paul anticipated that question to come from the, the mouths of, of people thinking about this seriously. So it's a, it's, a, it's a question that's been asked, and Paul answered it. The, the answer is, who are you, O oh man? to question God. Basically, God knows, and it's none of your business. That's what my friend Colin Brooks said in one of his um, podcasts I was listening to. It's none of your business. That's God. He can do what he wants. It's none of your business, you know? And, and are you okay with that answer? And the reason I can go, yeah, I'm okay with that is because it's consistent with the sovereign God who, who grants peace and comfort and joy and salvation to me. And if I undermine that and say, I am not okay with that, the God I worship 
is not that God and he does X, Y, Z. He doesn't, he doesn't decree those things. Well, if, you, if you're going to go that, down that road, now you're going to lose a lot of other things that you might like about Christianity, like Romans 8, 28, like Romans 9, like <laughs> salvation in general, right? Uh, you're going to lose so many other things. That's not worth it. I, I want to worship the God who's the potter. He can do what he wants with his clay. I will submit to that and worship that God as holy, even when he hides and has mysteri- and, and has those mysteries of he's he's willing or he he creates some as vessels of destruction destined for destruction and some vessels of righteousness right i i worship that god he's a holy and just god and he can do what he wants with his creation and and if i deny him that then i kind of also have to deny is this really his creation if god's created the you know if if there are if there are people totally able to do things outside of god's plan and decree and control then god's not really the god of this creation he's not really in full authority over everything so uh, i don't know it's a, it's you can't have you can't have it both ways you can't have your cake and eat it too right so he says it's always a result of man's hardened heart man's stubborn refusal to accept the truth um, we must submit to the word of God as the ultimate standard by which it is interpreted if we are able to have correct understanding. That is kind of the ultimate th- underpinning at the end of the day. Are you someone who's, who's willing to, be, to let your thoughts be governed and judged by scripture, which is reality, versus putting God on trial, which is foolishness? And it's foolishness because we live in God's world whether we accept it or not. So for us to say, well, let's let's put God's word to the test. It's foolishness when you realize that without God's word, we have no foundation for any intelligibility or logic or any of the tools we would use to put it to the test to begin with. Um, no one, I feel like no one in in the intellectual circles thinks like that. It's so frustrating. You know, that's why I want to have that shirt, right? The Skeologian ones with the guy saying, you know, brought up at the beginning of the show. Well, the Bible doesn't, you know, if I use science and logic, it doesn't agree with the Bible and then have another picture of the Bible and have it say foundation for logic, science, and all knowledge, right? It's just, it's, it's so foolish to the, to the believer to look at someone saying those arguments. I'm going to put God to the test and I'm going to use this to judge him. And, and then God's over there going, you can't even account for those things without first assuming that this Bible is true and assuming that my revelation is true because I'm the God who created this universe, does that take an, uh, an element of faith? Certainly, but it provides a necessary grounding for us to then use these, these faculties that God has created us with. So I, I, it's not like contradictory. It's, it's like, it, again, it's, it's like the link, the glorious consistency of seeing that. I, I do have to first submit to the infallible source of truth to then use my faculties logic reasoning to come to what is going to be fallible interpretations of what is around me. So the arguments from some quote Christian scientists who are saying like God would never lie. He's he's given us logic and reasoning to observe the world and 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 we can can we can uh, well if they say confirm that's fine but you know to discover these things and interpret things and and kind of equating nature as another source of revelation that is on par with the bible that's not true the bible is the is the infallible very words of god second timothy 3:16 right first timothy 3:16 what is it one of those two okay and nature is not a direct we can nature's been given to us by god it's evidence of him he he 
like it says in Romans, no one was is ever. No one is with an excuse, right? He's revealed himself in a, a, a general revelation for specific revelation, right? That we're not denying that, but but it's evidence of God, and it's not the same thing as direct, explicit word revelation. And when we look at nature and try to discover things about it, we are, we are using scientific processes that only can exist when we first submit to the Bible. And without doing that, with just saying it, we're, we're cheating the system. We're borrowing tools from the other worldview. And worse, if we take secular conclusions and use them to drive our our scientific processes and interpretation, that is not at all the same thing as interpreting the Bible. So interpreting nature and interpreting the Bible are not the same thing. This Bible, this book lays it out, lays that out very clearly, and I'm probably doing a crappy job of explaining that. But don't be deceived if someone is saying, well, we need to look at both Bibles that God, God has given us, the one that's nature and the one that's the word of God. First of all, that's a fallacy. Okay, that's what you have to realize is that is a fallacy. That's that's just they're they're not the same thing. But second of all, what they mean by interpreting nature most always is us the the popular view of 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 interpreting scientific evidence. Okay, because there are Christian scientists who start with the Bible, use the same evidence, and use the same procedures, but come to different conclusions because our conclusions are going to be based on our ultimate um, authority. They're going to be based on what we're, what we're ultimately loyal to in our intellectual um, submission. <clears throat> so if you're ultimately loyal to the earth has to be 4.6 billion years old, you're going to take evidence and go, well, given, the, the, given that we know the earth is 4.6 billion years old, then this, 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 this. And for the Christian who's going, given that the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old, than this, 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 this. Well, let's see. I'll try and finish. I, I guess I talked about, oh, the hermeneutical spiral is itself taught in Scripture. There's some verses talking about that. Um, talks about how, so the, 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 word, the, the part of that is it, it mentions some verse about the milk of the word, the meat of the word, those things that which are obvious, and then moving on to maturity, the, the meat of the word, the things that are not equally clear, that's the stuff that requires the hermeneutical skill to understand. So that's going through that process. That's uh, referencing some of those, sometimes referencing external sources, but always testing those external sources with the ultimate rule of Scripture being consistent with Scripture. So not just going, well, this guy's really smart. He knows what he's talking about. He must be right. No, it's going, well, this guy's really smart. He must be talking about, so I'm going to read it. But my ultimate litmus test is going to be, is his interpretation making scripture be consistent with itself? Because if it's not, then he's off somewhere. He, he, he can't be right. And you'll be shocked when you use that as your litmus test at how often you are able to, to realize like, hey, this guy really truly does have scripture's consistency as his litmus, litmus test versus this guy is kind of loyal to some other sources of authority. And, and he's, he's, not, he's not really being fair to the text. <laughs> and, and, and you see that with some people who are very smart, by the way, very, very smart. And, and I, I would not even say they're not, not Christians, but they're, they, again, they're, they're like so clearly attached to something they just can't give it up. I thought actually I wanted to read something before we close this show 
about that, that sort of um, salvation, miraculous work of God. Hmm. The ignorance of the dead. Wow, he actually talks about um, Lyle is is reformed in his theology, so he does bring about that. And I wrote in my notes, God must take out the heart of stone or replace it with the heart of flesh in order for the person to begin to grasp the higher thoughts of God. Look at me, I should write a theological book. Uh, <clears throat> oh. Yeah. Okay, so he has this, this section about why people might interpret Scripture wrong. So why why might we come to wrong interpretations. And <clears throat> I, I circled a couple of reasons I want to bring up and, and I'll, I'll leave this with you to challenge you. So the Bible, the Bible, sometimes, sometimes we succumb to the temptation to resist God's word in areas of our life that are not completely yielded to God. We may, not, we may not be consciously aware of an area of hard-hearted pride in our lives, but such areas exist nonetheless. Nonetheless, um, this and I wrote this could be in areas of uh, intellectual sin too. So I think sometimes, especially really smart people, they might not even realize that they have an intellectual conclusion that has existed in their mind and hearts, but it's, and it's not based off of a sound foundation, but because of their upbringing, their experiences, their environment, they, they, they hold to it and, and they hold to it flawed. It's a flawed, they're, they're hold, holding to it based on no reasonable grounds. And, and when I say that no reasonable grounds, I know they could defend it because they're smart. They have, they have in their head, they, they can consistently defend it. But, but they are, the reason that, that they can do so is part of that chain, part of that link is faulty. And it's a, it's a faulty wire, faulty connection, whatever you want to call it. And the reason it's still there is because they're not willing to yield a portion of their life to God. Okay. And that's kind of going back to what I touched on earlier in the show, even like maybe it was grandma told me this. Maybe it was a song that stuck in my heart that had a actual theological principle that is just so ingrained into me. It's, it's, it is, I've never questioned it and I've actually built theology off of it. Uh, that happens. And that, that's, it, it can happen. I think a, uh, to a lot of Christians, especially Christians coming from good homes where mom and dad are really trying to give them good theology. And, and I think that Christian just has to go, Hey, remember what my ultimate authority is. It's the word of God. And, and if I actually was taught something in vacation Bible school, uh, but I realize now because I've, I've correctly interpreted the Bible and studied it and been sanctified and gone through that process more and more and more and matured, gone on to maturity. And I understand the meat of the word and the milk of the word, and that doesn't hold up anymore. And to go, okay, interesting. All right. I'm not going to make the same mistake with my, with my child maybe, or, or I'm going to, I'm going to be willing to go. I just had that wrong. Like the Bible, the Bible says this, <laughs> and it's more important to that than holding to my vacation Bible school song. Uh, and by the way, if you're thinking, did that happen to him? No, not really. I, I can't think of a vacation Bible school song off the top of my head where I was like, wow, that's bad doctrine. But it does happen. If I did some work, I could think of it probably. Second, a Christian might understand a text simply because he or she hasn't studied it sufficiently. Misunderstood, sorry. 
so this next part is you need to take the time to read the Bible thoroughly and frequently. So you have to, in order to say, yep, this is consistent with the rest of Scripture, this is my interpretation, you have to know what the rest of Scripture says. This is the part for me where I, I rely a lot on external text. I've read the Bible two and a half times maybe or whatever in my life, maybe three times all the way through, but that doesn't mean I understand all of Scripture and I understand how you write like the, the entirety of it. So this is where... For me, I do, I rely on that listening to podcasts, listening to other people talk about certain things, and they they talk about the interpretation of scripture, and then I might hear from a different source about the same scripture, right, and their reasonings for interpretation. And, and if the reasonings, right, those two rules, you have to have a reasoning for this interpretation, and it has to be consistent, self-consistent. And if you listen to five different people talk about one Bible verse or one doctrinal element within a scripture verse, you'll see pretty quickly who is allowing scripture to be consistent with scripture in in uh, forming their argument and those who aren't. It's very obvious. It's crazy obvious, actually, but it does take some time to do it, okay? It does take some time. So that's the second reason. Uh, what do we have? Wow, hour and a half in the show today. Well, I guess I went way longer. I was at 40 minutes, and I was like, oh, it'd be a good show, but let's keep going. The final one, the final, the third one, it says a Christian might understand the individual words, but then fail to reason properly from that information resulting in faulty theology. I would suggest that this is one of the main reasons why there are so many different denominations of Christianity in the world today. Again, the fault lies in us, not in God's word. If we don't reason correctly from the text, it would be absurd to blame the text. The solution to these latter two is education, right? Cross-references. Finally, Christian, Christians should have an attitude of humility that seeks to be corrected from unbiblical theology and behavior. There it is right there. Do you have an attitude of humility? Are you, are you okay being corrected or not? Um, Fail to reason properly. That's interesting. I think that is true, though. I mean, we, I, can, I can think of people in my life who um, have great hearts and they desire to know more about God and they love God and they love people. They want to grow in their faith, but they're not on the same level uh, in terms of like their logical and re- their logic and reasoning skills as other people. I mean, I'm I will readily admit that I know people close to me who. It, like in terms of just logic and reasoning, they're above me by a lot. And they, they grasp those concepts much better than I do. And so, um, and, and, and you could argue in many ways, like this can be a, a hindrance or a flaw, but it also can be such an incredible skill. So some, some people are like, well, I, I, don't, I don't need any of that. And I'm glad I don't have any of those skills because I just have faith. That's, that's not what true faith is. You know, listen to Greg Bonson. But um, also, you know, and, and so to defend that, if you have really good logic and reasoning, then when you put together the pieces, you're like, whoa, this makes sense. I believe it. And I have grounds to believe it. Um, so somewhere in the middle are the people who they desire to know God, they desire biblical truth. They, do, they lack some ability to logic and reasoning. So they, they read a passage and they don't interpret it because they're not... Their, their brains aren't thinking about logically. Does this comport with this other doctrine, or can I can I reasonably come to this conclusion? And and they fail to do that. And it's not it's it's simply because they don't have that skill as developed. So that's kind of what that means. If you're reading that, does that just mean I'm stupid? 
No, but <laughs> but I think that is almost the essence of what an IQ test might might measure is your ability to logic and reason. So I think those with a very high ability to logic and reason, they can be the people who are either the heroes of the faith or the hard-hearted people who who come to the conclusion that um, that they just hate God and that's the only alternative to hate God because logic and reasoning used to its fullest does not does not comport with their worldview. It only comports with the Christian worldview. So they're left with um, joining the Christian worldview or hating God, and they choose to hate God. That, and we see that, and and that's um, they, they they I don't I can't say they're like villains of the faith really because in a lot of ways I feel like they become also vessels to glorify God in a sense because it becomes so blatantly obvious to others. And I think of some of the premier um, secularists, atheists, evolution supporters that we've had in the course of history. Some of them have been, uh, in my life at least, have impacted me to, to hold on to my faith even stronger because it's been they've been, their lives have been lived out in such a way and their beliefs have been expressed in such a way that I can clearly see, um, the rebellion towards God, like everything they have matches up with what a Christian will teach me when a Christian theologian goes, now see, look, son, if you, if you, if you submit to the word of God, here's your worldview and here's how, how it works. And if you reject God, here's the worldview and here's its necessary conclusions. And then you have someone who is, who's the premier evolutionist who rejects God and they live that out exactly like it, like it would be (laughs) like the Bible says it will be. And so it's like, in a way, they glorify God because they bring security too. So if you're someone who is a high functioning intellectual and logic, you're probably going to be used to glorify God. And I guess you can submit to the word of God and let all those things line up and you see the glorious consistency and truth. And you can be someone like a Jason Lyle who, who can be at the forefront of those arguments, supporting and defending the Christian faith. Or you can be someone who decides, ah, crap, all this stuff, makes sense in a Christian worldview, but I hate God. I can't go down that road. And you can choose to use your, your intellectual power and in rebellion to God. But again, you're going to be glorifying God by doing that too, <laughs> because there's going to be Christians who look at you and go, huh, wow, look at the inevitable conclusion of a worldview that, that rebels against God. Well, I think we covered enough and uh, we got through most of these main points that I wanted to see. Oh man, there's, there is still more. Talk, when he talks about salvation and the real meaning of iron sharpening iron, we are here to help each other, challenging our brothers and sisters in Christ to rightly interpret God's word as they challenge us to do the same. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. That is true. Iron sharpening iron. Hopefully, this has been a little bit of iron sharpening iron here on the Cedar Skier or Skeologian. Sorry, our religious bent podcast, Skeologians. Huge episode today. Hope you stayed with us for most of it. We'll be at next time. Uh, since it's break, I just kind of want to do some shows. So if you're, if you're lacking on, uh, you're missing out on our podcast, we're going to be getting more content to you all the time. So have a wonderful day today. We will see you later.